Thank you, worship team. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It has been a privilege to be here this weekend, to be with these students. These are a wonderful, wonderful group of teenagers. And um, got to be a little bit honest with you. When I got ready to come here, I was a little bit intimidated. I have not preached to youth in a very, very long time. And so I was talking to my wife about that. And finally, she just kind of stopped me and said, look, don't try to be funny. Don't try to be engaging. Just be yourself. So not really sure what to make of that, but uh, that's what she said. So anyhow, but it has been a lot, a lot of fun to be here this week. And one of the perks of doing a youth conference like this, I get to preach with a t-shirt on on Sunday morning. And another perk is yesterday, yesterday listen to my day yesterday. I had McDonald's for breakfast, Chick-fil-A for lunch, Papa John's for supper. It doesn't get much better than that. That's a pretty good day there. And my wife's not in town, so I can get away with that, right? So it's a great day yesterday, great day. But it is great to be here. This is a wonderful church full of wonderful people. I'm so excited for what God is doing here. And uh, when I say that, I really mean it. As Derek said earlier, I was on staff here from 2002 to 2007 as the student pastor. And then 2010 through the end of 2013 as the missions pastor. My wife and I were newlyweds uh, in 2002 when Brother Wayne Marshall announced that they were, Longview Heights was looking to plant a church in Hernando. And we were at that church at that time just as, as uh, just lay people in the church. And so we had the privilege of being part of that first 30 people that left Longview Heights and came over here to help get this church planted. So love this church. Uh, know a lot of you in this church, but there's also a lot of you I don't know uh, because of, uh, you know, this church has grown a lot, which is really, really an awesome, awesome thing. I also get a little bit, you know, it kind of warms my heart a little bit when I look around and I still see some of our students who were here back when I was the, the student pastor. Uh, they're in their 30s now, which means I'm really old, and I get that, and that's totally fine. Uh, but a couple of them were up here on the stage earlier. Your flautist was one of those. And uh, I literally just wanted to say that so I could say the word flautist this morning, but your flute player was, was up here. And, uh, and then Austin back here on the guitar, you know, the really good looking cool dude with the leather jacket on, that's Austin. He was in the youth group years ago, but it is, it is great to be back. We moved to Belfouche, South Dakota, January of 2014. We've been so blessed by what God uh, has done and is doing in our midst. This is great uh, workout for me because uh, we're, we're actually about to add our third service on February 28th, our third Sunday morning service. And so really, really excited about that. I, I, do, I do need to feel like, I, I feel like I need to make a little disclaimer. This is my sixth sermon to preach in the last 36 hours. And so if, if my voice cracks like a mid-high boy, no offense, mid-high boys, no offense at all. But if my voice starts cracking a little bit, it's just from fatigue. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there initially. But, uh, but thank you for your, your commitment to our church in our early stages especially. Thank you for all of you who have prayed for us and who have checked in on us throughout the years. And it's just great to be with you this morning. First Peter chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 11 and 12, but I want to start reading in verse 9. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that, he may proclaim the, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, now look at verse 10. This is a beautiful verse that should minister to our souls. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the the first thing we notice is there's a bit of a transition between verses 10 and 11. Peter had just encouraged those that he was writing with some very exciting truths about who they are in Christ. And in, in verse 11, he begins to transition to how that should affect them. Because of who you are in Christ, here is how you should now act, and here is how you should now interact with the world around you. So he transitions in verse 11 by using the word beloved. Beloved, this is the word agapetas. This word has a double meaning. He is calling them in the primary sense, beloved by God. You are people that God loves deeply. But secondarily, he is writing of his own love for them. Peter is writing of the great love that he has for for the people who are receiving this letter. Now, here's the reason I mention this. There was a time when Peter was called out for his prejudice against Gentile people. And in this letter, Peter is primarily writing Gentile believers, even though he is a Jewish man. But even after coming to know Christ, even after following, God, following the Lord Jesus, after seeing Jesus dead and raised from the dead, even after knowing that Gentiles were able to receive the salvation of God, Gentiles are non-Jews, even after knowing that they could receive the salvation of God, it took Peter a while to fully embrace the implications of that in his own life. So I want to share a little bit, a little bit more about this. In Acts chapter 10, we find a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius, the scriptures tell us, was a devout, God-fearing man. And one day in a vision, God told him to send some of his men to Joppa and to bring back a man named Simon Peter. And God gave him very explicit, very, very direct instructions on how to find him. He said that Peter is lodging at a man's house named Simon, who was a tanner, whose house was by the sea. So Cornelius does what God says. He sends some of his men to Joppa to bring Peter back to him. The next day, as the men were coming near to the house that Peter was lodging at, Peter had gone up on the rooftop to pray. And during his prayer time, he became hungry. And he also had a vision during this this prayer time. And he saw the heavens opened up, and he saw what appeared to be a sheet descending from heaven. And in that sheet were all kinds of animals. And then he heard a voice from heaven that said, Arise, kill, and eat. And Peter, being a Jewish man, said, By no means, Lord. By no means, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. In other words, as a Jew, Peter was still holding on to some of the Old Testament laws regarding diet. But then a voice came from heaven and said to him, what God has made clean, do not call common, do not call unclean. After this vision, Peter was perplexed as to what that meant. At that time, those Gentile men who had been sent by Cornelius came to the house that Peter was lodging at. And as they were calling out and asking if Peter was there, the Spirit of God told Peter that these men were looking for him. So he goes downstairs to meet them, and and they tell him what had happened and how Cornelius had requested his presence. So the next day, Peter goes with them, and they come into Cornelius' presence, and Cornelius falls on his face before Peter to worship him. Peter rebukes him and says, stand up, I am a man just like you. Then Peter said this, Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, and this is where he's putting it all together. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Cornelius then shared what had happened and how God had given him this vision to call for Peter. Peter stands, he preaches the gospel, and many of the Gentiles who were there believed the message. After this, at some point, 
Peter, even though he knew this about God's love for and inclusion of the Gentiles into his family, he was tempted and he was led astray to show partiality toward his Jewish brothers over his Gentile brothers. We find that account in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul calls him out about this. Galatians 2, Paul writes, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came, uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the Jews. And the rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically, along with even Barnabas, the encourager. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So even after seeing the vision that God gave him in Acts chapter 10, it was still very much a work in progress for Peter to embrace fully these Gentiles as being fellow heirs of God's grace. In fact, 1 Peter was written many years after Acts 10 and, and after... Now I can get really loud. But he said, if, you, if uh, where, where was that? Let me think for a second here. Okay, so after seeing the vision God gave him in Acts 10, it was still a work in progress for Peter to really embrace the Gentiles as being full fellow heirs of the grace of God. And so I wanted to go through all of that history with you to say that Peter, starting out in verse 11 here with the word agapetos, beloved, that was very, very significant. It had been a progression, but God had removed his prejudice and had replaced it with love and brotherhood toward his Gentile family of faith. Now, why were they beloved brothers and sisters? Why were they beloved? Well, it goes back to the previous couple of verses. Though Gentiles, they had trusted in Christ. They had repented of their sins. They had believed fully in Jesus. They had been given the mercy of God, and now they were part of the family of God. And as a result of that, and as a result of the change that God had placed in Peter's heart, he refers to them in a beautiful term, Beloved, beloved. Peter was writing people that he cared about deeply and he wanted what was best for them. So look at this verse again. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and here's what he urges them, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So truth number one for a believer, if you know Christ, truth number one is this. I am a sojourner and an exile in this world. Those are two very significant words. They're very interesting words. Sojourner is a Greek word that literally means alongside the house. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's the picture of one who lives in a temporary structure set up beside a permanent house, someone who didn't really belong in a certain land or a household. To live as a foreign person, it would be like, it would be like you going to someone else's land and setting up a tent next to their house. It's not really your land, but you are temporarily living there. That is what sojourner means. And then he says, we are exiles in this world. That is a stranger or a pilgrim in a foreign land is the idea. Now, if you go back to chapter one and you read the very beginning of this letter, Peter was writing people who literally were sojourners and exiles. They had been displaced. They had been scattered because of persecution, identification with Christ. They had been chased from their lands and forced to settle in other areas. And so this idea of sojourner, this, this idea of exile was very relatable to those who read this. But he's using this obviously here in a spiritual sense. 
And those two words, sojourner and exile, they're very important for all Christians as they remind us of a few things. First of all, as sojourners and exiles in this world, we are reminded that this world is not our home. And I will tell you this, in all of the insanity, all of the craziness of our world and of our nation right now, I am so glad that my hope does not rest in this place. This world is not our home. We are part of an unshakable kingdom, a better kingdom, an eternal kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom of God, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This place is not our home. We're only passing through. Second, we also know as sojourners and exiles that comfort is not our goal. Comfort is not our goal. Now there are people out there spending literally billions and billions and billions of dollars to try to get us to buy into the lie that our comfort and our pleasure is primary in life. And I beg with you, do not buy into that. Do not buy into that. But as Christians, we remember that our comfort is not the goal, but we do live among people who are completely comfortable here. This is their home. One of the things that always kind of shocks me is I find myself doing this, and you may find yourself doing this as well. You, you, know, you get on social media or you get on you know, Facebook or, or whatever, or you, you watch TV or you, whatever, news outlets you want to watch. And, and you get on there and, and we begin to think to ourselves, man, why is the world embracing these things? Why is the world going crazy? Well, it's because it's who they are. It's what they know. It is their flesh. It is Satan warring against us in those things. And so the world, the world is going to act like the world. It's going to act like the world. So though we are not to be comfortable here in this world, we live beside people who are very comfortable in this world. Third thing we're reminded of here is sojourner and exiles is that God's mission then is our mandate. God's mission is our mandate. We're gonna come back to this in a bit, but while we are, as Christ followers, aren't to be at home in this world, God has us here and now for a very, very divine reason, and it is to make him known to this world around us. We're gonna come back to that in a bit. Because of these things, it is absolutely critical that we discern what is at stake. Discern what is at stake. He writes here in verse 11 that Christians are to abstain, to abstain from passions, or strong desires of the flesh. Now, when we think of that, I think our mind naturally goes to sexual immorality. And certainly that is a big part of what he is talking about here. But this idea of abstaining from passions, this is encompassing all desires, all things that are contrary to God's will for us. For example, in Galatians 5, Paul gives a little more expanded list. And he says in verses 19 and 20, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, that's a pretty broad list there. And that's what Peter is writing about here. We abstain from all of those things that are contrary to the will of God for us. Now, we all have areas of our lives that we naturally struggle in, that we are more predisposed to struggle in than, than other areas of our lives. Maybe it's sexual Maybe it was, it's with lustful, or lustful thoughts or sinful actions. Maybe it is with rivalries with others, always comparing yourself to others and being jealous and hateful of those who you think you don't measure up to. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's, and we're not going to stay on that one. Maybe it's dissensions and always longing for controversy, you know, gossip. Maybe it's drunkenness. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's anger. Whatever it may be, whatever you tend to struggle with, and you know what those things are, and I think we might have blind spots occasionally, but for the most part, we have a pretty good idea of what it is that we are tempted with. And we know that those things can be very, very hard to overcome. In fact, I want you to notice here that Peter uses an interesting phrase to describe how strong these fleshly passions can be. 
he writes that they literally, they wage war against our souls. Now that is not flowery and weak language that he employs here. This is a word that means to carry on a strategic military campaign. For the Christian, our soul and our flesh are in constant conflict. Listen, my greatest struggle in life is not with all of those people out there. My greatest struggle in life is not with all of those circumstances out there. My greatest struggle in life is right here on this stage. It is with me. Some say, you know, I struggle with this person or that person or that kind of person, or I struggle with (laughs) these days that political ideology or that political ideology or person of this race or this culture or whatever. But listen, our greatest struggle is in here because all of those things out there derive from in here. This is our greatest struggle. Hear people say, I just do what feels right. I just trust my gut. I just follow my heart. See that on Facebook all the time. By the way, if you get your theology from Facebook, you need to get off Facebook, right? It's just not a good place to get your theology, but you see that kind of stuff. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. And let me tell you, that little voice inside of you that tells you to do what's right, to follow your heart, that voice is not your friend. It's not your friend. It is your enemy. I mean, I've literally heard of husbands using this line of reasoning who have left their wife and their children because they just felt like their heart was leading them to this other woman. That is a raging war that is going on in that person's heart that they just lost. And rather than taking note of that little voice being the enemy, they embraced it as being their friend, just like an enemy spy that infiltrates in order to destroy, so also are our unchecked passions of the flesh. That's what Peter writes here. Families have been ruined by the unbridled passion of a dad or a husband or a mom or a wife who've made terrible choices to follow the lead of their flesh. Churches have been destroyed and split by this. Christ has often been ridiculed when a Christian falls morally because their guard is down. A lot, a lot is at stake. The purity of our souls is at stake. But in the case of the Christian, the sojourner, the exile, there's more at stake than even our own souls. Look at verse 12 here. Verse 12, Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Truth number two for the Christian, if indeed you know Christ, truth number two is this, I am a representative of Christ to this world. It isn't just our own souls that are at stake, but we represent Christ to those around us. And Peter writes here that because of that, we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep, keep, he says. This is ongoing. Continually keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why does he say that? Well, he says next year, so that not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. By the way, not if, but when. If you truly seek to live your life radically sold out for Jesus, and I really believe this, the way that we are going right now as a nation and as a world, the way things are going right now, if you really try to live for Jesus and sell out your life to him and believe what he says, it is not a matter of when, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're gonna be slandered for that. It's coming, it's coming, and we've gotta decide, it's a line in the sand. Will we bow our knee to the world or will we say, Lord, I am gonna follow you come what may? Peter says here, when they slander you, keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good works and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the most famous sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when, when they slander you as an evildoer, Peter's telling those that he's writing, prove them wrong by having done what is right. Evildoers, by the way, this word for evildoers, this was a fairly commonly used term for Christians back in this day. Christians were wrongly slandered as being troublemakers. They were often labeled as anti-government, and here's why. There were Christians back in this day who refused to bow their knee and say Caesar is Lord. Because they said there's only one Lord, there's only one God, and his name is Jesus. They would not bow their knee. And so they were labeled as anti-government. They were labeled as troublemakers. They were viewed as being very odd and following an odd and seemingly new deity. This made non-Christians very, very angry. In fact, some of them even believed that when bad things happened in their, in, in their world, that it was a direct result of their gods being angry at the Christians for adopting this new and false god named Jesus. There were all types of rumors during this time that were swirling about Christians, even things extreme like they're cannibals. They're a cannibalistic sect who eat their own. I mean, all types of crazy stuff. But Peter says here, they may say those things about you. They may label you as evildoers. But if you live in a distinct way that honors God, God will honor that. God will give you favor with some. And the lost world, world will, in some cases, take note of your good conduct and your godliness. And in some cases, those good works will cause those people to start pursuing God when they hear the gospel on the day of visitation, as it says here, the day that God's message is shared. All right, I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Is everyone with me? I know I'm talking quickly. I was told I went a little bit over in the first service, so I'm trying to talk faster. So uh, I know I talked a lot there. Let's put all this together. Since Christians live in the world, we're not to be of the world, but we live in the world. Since we live alongside those who are completely comfortable in this world, since we have sinful passions waging war against our souls, since we are going to be slandered by the world if we really live for Jesus, can anyone, can anyone really wage a good war back? I mean, it seems like the deck is stacked against us, doesn't it? It seems like we are outflanked in this war that Peter writes of here. It looks like our enemy and our flesh have a much more strategic position to win this battle, and you may very well have felt like that before. Maybe you decided at one point you were going to be a radical, sold-out believer for Christ, and you began to, to live life for him, and you began to be attacked for that. In your flesh waged war, the enemy came after you to a point where you might have even thrown up your hands and said, God, I don't know that I can do this. It's just too much. Things are too difficult. But here's what we've got to remember. This exhortation that we are to abstain from fleshly lust and keep our conduct honorable. This is not a command that is lacking in power. This is not a pull yourself up by the spiritual bootstraps kind of thing. We must not only recognize what is at stake for us and for those around us, but we must also recognize what is available to us. Now, this is not stated explicitly in these particular verses here. But it's all throughout this book and it's all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout 1 Peter and it's all throughout the Bible. Chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, remind us of how important it is that we stay close to Christ to find strength in this battle we are engaged in. Here's a great principle that we find at work all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to the very end, we've, this is a principle we find all throughout the Bible. God's power always accompanies God's call. Aren't you glad for that? We don't serve a distant God who tells us to do something that doesn't help us. His power always accompanies his call. 
And God, through the inspiration of his holy word here, is calling us to battle, to fight, to wage war against the very passions that are waging war against our souls. And with his call also comes his presence and his power in our lives. But, but we've got to understand, too, this is not a let go and let God kind of theology that we adopt here. This does not mean that we simply read this and acknowledge it and then turn around and live our lives completely unprepared, completely undisciplined for this battle. Just like in an actual war, we must also be prepared. Consider a general who is leading his troops into war. Long before the war starts, he gets a plan in place. He is strategic in that plan. He gathers facts. He takes things into consideration. Then he crafts a plan. I was reading some quotes from famous generals that I think help us to understand the seriousness of, of battle and the need for appropriate strategy. Listen to some of these. General Omar Bradley, in war there is no prize for runner-up. A lot is at stake. General Douglas MacArthur, it is fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. Do we really take this seriously? Are we in it to win it? General George Patton, a leader is a man who can adapt principles into his circumstances. By the way, do you know what he just said there unknowingly most likely? He gave us the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowing something. Charles Spurgeon said that there are a lot of knowing fools out there. They know a lot, but wisdom is when we can take what we know and apply it into a circumstance. And General, General Patton here, he, he made a statement that was very good. He probably had no clue the, the depth, the spiritual depth of what he was saying, but a leader is a man who can adapt principles to his circumstance. Are we wise in this battle? From an ancient Chinese commander, he said the general who wins the battle is the one who makes calculations in his temple before the battle is fought. The general who loses makes but few calculations. Are you ready? Are we calculating in our fight? against fleshly desires that are waging war against our soul. I'm afraid that as Christians, especially in the Western world, we who are comfortable, we who think we have everything we could possibly need in life, I'm afraid that we're not very calculating in this fight. We don't often take this battle seriously. And we forget that there is an ongoing war within us. Again, Peter didn't write here, abstain from fleshly passions that sometimes trip us up or that sometimes bother us. No, he said they wage war, a military campaign against our souls, and we must have a plan, a plan to fight back against this. And we need wisdom to develop that plan. God's power is there. Colossians says that we can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. God's power is there in abundance, and God's wisdom is there. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Listen, if that is true, then here's what that means. When you don't have wisdom in life, you don't know what to do, you just simply pray in faith and say, God, you've got to help me. I don't know what to do. And the promise there is God will equip you with that. He will give you that wisdom. God's power is there. God's wisdom is there. So here are some important questions for us to consider. If, and this is very practical, but what I'm about to get into here for a minute. If you don't have a game plan in place for fighting this war, then please go home today and use these questions as a, as, a, as a guide to get a strategic battle plan in place. First question we need to ask, and this is applicable to all of us, but I think especially to our students. Number one is this, where is this spiritual battle fought? Where is it fought? And the primary battleground that we fight this in is right here. It's our mind because our mind informs our actions. Our mind informs our worldview. So it's fought right here. 
And really, it's, it's, it's actually quite simple. It's a battle that comes down to a battle between lies and truth, between faith and unbelief. Are we going to em- embrace what is true and then obey God, even if it goes radically against our culture? And it does. Are we going to reject what the world says and believe what God has, says, has said? So what are you putting into your mind? Are you, is your mind being renewed, as Romans 12 says? It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I've used this illustration before at our church, but I want you to imagine that, you have, that, that, that we have an $80,000 sports car, and I know we all do. We have the $80,000 sports car, and we drive it to the, literally the worst, most crime-riddled place in our country, wherever that might be. You go there, you go to the worst neighborhood there, And you park this $80,000 sports car, you have the windows down, the doors unlocked, keys in the ignition, and you put a big post-it note on it that says, keys are in the ignition. One minute, over, under, one minute. It's going to be gone, right? It's going to be gone really quickly. Why? Because you opened it up to be taken. You opened it up, you made it easy, you opened it up to be victimized. And I think, unfortunately, many times what we put up here, we are just saying, hey, world, come get in here. Victimize me right? And we put these things in our mind, and then we can't figure out why we're having trouble in our relationship with with our Lord. We can't understand why we're having, you know, family relationships or, or friend relationships. We can't understand what's happening in our lives. Well, it's because we are being conformed to this world rather than allowing our minds to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So what are you taking in? What are you putting in your mind? Are you taking in truth? Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ, let the word of God dwell richly within you. So step number one in this plan is you need to develop a plan to regularly take in the word of God. Regularly take it in, to be, have your mind renewed by the word of Christ. Number two, second question we need to ask in this battle plan is what are my weaknesses and where am I susceptible? What are my weaknesses and where am I susceptible? We've got to know what we struggle with and we've got to know where the enemy lies in ambush. We've got to know where not to go because, my friends, we have a literal enemy who wants to destroy us. We have a literal enemy, the chief of the demons, Satan, who hates you, and he hates your children, and he wants to destroy your life and your kids' lives. It's not some fairy tale. It is is everything in your life is at stake. And there is a devil out there who hates you and wants to destroy you. Listen, Satan, Satan fell from heaven because of his pride. He wanted to be like God, and he's not like God. And then sometime later, God creates people. The only creation created in the image of God, not even the, the angels are. And so Satan is enraged, and he is jealous of this creation. And as a result, he then turns his hatred and his wrath, and he wants to pour it out on mankind. He wants to destroy. This is, this is literal. I'm not, when I say this, I'm not just being you know, overdramatic. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy our families. He wants to destroy this church. And so we've got to know where our weaknesses are to guard against that. Standard example I can give you that you've heard a thousand times. If you're an alcoholic, don't go to a bar. Common sense. If you struggle with, with lust and pornography, maybe you need to block the browser on your phone and on your computer. If you struggle with materialism and overspending, there are things and places you need to avoid. Whatever areas you struggle in, Satan is waiting to ambush you there. Now, I know what happens. I know what happens. We often rationalize this. A few years ago, I had a guy I was counseling counseling with, and 
He was struggling with pornography. His wife knew about it. He was in a bad place. His, his marriage was on the precipice of, of separation and divorce because he wouldn't give that up. And I said, man, you got to get away from it. You got to block your browser on your computer, on your phone. You got to take ra radical measures to get away from that stuff. And he rationalized. He said, but I can't. I got to have it for work. And so I said, fine, then lose your family. Lose your family. Lose your life for work. No, no, no. Listen, we're in a battle. And sometimes that requires extreme measures to guard our purity, to fight for our purity. So step number two, what do I need to avoid? Number three, what weapons are available to me? Third question we need to ask is what weapons are available? We need to employ the right spiritual weapons in this war that we are engaged in. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through five. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. Parakletos, the one who comes alongside us to help us, to aid us in life. If you know Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. You have the copy of the Word of God in front of you, which, by the way, a lot of places in the world don't. We have the privilege of having it in our language. We have the, the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to communicate with God, and we have so many other things. So step number three here is learn what weapons I lack in this battle and how I can have access to them. Number four, fourth question we need to ask is this, who should be in this battle with me? Who should be in this battle with me? We need wise counselors around us to help us. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance of people fall, but in an abundance of counselors there's victory. Other brothers and sisters around us, we need one another. I mean, if anything this last year has shown us in isolation is we are created for relationship with others. We need one another. Those of you in this room, look around right now. You need one another. People will say, well, you know what? I don't really like the church. I just worship on the lake. Listen, I get it, and you can certainly worship there, but you can't get what you need on the lake. You need other people in your life. Sin grows best in the greenhouse of isolation. If you want to give in to this battle and just go with your fleshly desires, then live life alone. Live life separate of other people. And it'll be easy to do that. It's kind of like that, that wildebeest that's way off to the side, an injured or a small wildebeest, and it's off by itself. What is the lion going to go after? It's going to go after that one that's isolated, that one that's alone. And our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you want to be devoured, just separate yourself from the church of the living God. Go do life on your own. It's impossible. We need one another. And this is a great place, by the way. If you don't have a church home, you're here visiting today, this is a great place to come. It's a great place to find community, to find accountability in your life. So question, question number four here is, who do I need on my team? Who do I need on my team to help me in this? And then number five is this, and this is the most important one. What should my primary focus be fixed on? The biggest key in all of this is just stay near our Lord. Stay near Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. By the way, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, what is it not fixed on? The world around you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, they will not be fixed on all of these other things. So step number five here is do I have a clear plan of discipleship in my life? Now, if you don't, regardless of what stage you're in, this is a wonderful church to be a part of. I don't know if you noticed when you came in each of the, whichever door, the front or the back, back door there, there is a, a, a display on the wall. It's called the pathway. Whatever stage of life you were in, they have a plan at this church 
to help you grow to be a better disciple of Christ. So if you, if you would say, well, you know, I've, I've got some of these other steps, but I'm kind of struggling with this one, finding, uh, just knowing the best way to move forward as a disciple of Christ, find a pastor here. Find a connect group leader, and they can help you and connect you with these resources to help you grow in your faith. So take these truths, these questions, and craft a plan of attack. So much is at stake in our lives. You are a sojourner. You're an exile if you know Christ, and you have the awesome privilege and the responsibility of representing Christ to this world, and, and there is an urgency in this. And urgency. There are literally billions with a B, billions of people around the world today who if they died right now, they would step into a Christless eternity. There is an urgency in this. I'll close with this illustration. Jay, Jay Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China in the 1800s, and he had a, a deep, deep and abiding passion to see China, uh, to see China come to Christ, see people there reconciled to God. And one day while he was on a boat, he was talking with a Chinese man for hours about Jesus. And this Chinese man even came to a point after hearing the gospel of shedding some tears because he knew that there was something to what J. Hudson Taylor was telling him, but he also was counting the cost. And if he trusted in Christ, his family would reject him and cast him out. Society would, he would lose his job. So the man told J. Hudson Taylor, he said, look, I hear what you're saying and I like it, but I'm just not quite ready yet to trust in Christ. Well, after a few minutes apart, they ended their conversation. They went to different sides of the boat. And after a few minutes apart, Hudson heard the cries of man overboard, man overboard. And when he looked, it was the same man that he had been witnessing to. The man had accidentally fallen out of the boat and into the water, and the man could not swim at all. So Hudson jumped in, but by the time he made it in there, the man had already descended below the surface of the water. And so Hudson went up and down, up and down in various parts trying to find him, and he just could not find this man. And he saw a fishing boat off in the distance, so he motioned them over. Fishing boat came over, and he told them, he said, man, you've got to drop your nets. You've got to drag the bottom. There is a man below. His life is at stake. Hurry. And to his amazement and to his alarm, the fisherman simply said, it's not convenient. We came here to fish. And Hudson said, don't talk of convenience. Come quickly. This man's going to die. Fishermen then said, well, how much money will you give us? They recognized him as being wealthy. How much money will you give us? Five dollars, he replied, but hurry. They said, no, we want 30. He said, I'll give you everything I have. I have 14 dollars. I'll give you everything I have. Just come quickly. And they did. And once they drugged the bottom, they finally did find the man. They got him out of the water, but it was too late. The man had already died walking into eternity, separated from God, all because these men did not want to be inconvenienced. May that not be us in this story. May that not be us. There is an urgency in publishing the message of God. We are God's possessions, as verse 9 says, and we have been called out to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are exiles and we are sojourners, but God has us here and now to be his ambassadors in this world. Let's reject our fleshly passions and let's go hard after Christ to make him known in this world. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now and close your eyes. And as the worship team comes, we're going to have an invitation here in just a minute. And after I pray, we're going to stand and sing a song together. But if you need to come down front and talk to someone, we would love to talk with you. If you don't know Christ, most importantly, if there's never been a point in your life where you have repented of your sins, trusted in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Jesus died a sinner's death, though sinless. 
He died in your place on the cross that you deserve so that you could be forgiven and have life. If you've never trusted in him, do that today. Don't wait till tomorrow for tomorrow is not promised. Do that today. Maybe you're here today and you know in your heart, you've nailed down the truth that you love God, you know God, you are a Christian. But maybe if you're very honest, there are things in your life right now that do not, do not reflect a sojourner in an exile. There are things in your life maybe that don't line up with God's will. Maybe you're just giving in day after day, day after day without thinking about it to these fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. If that is you today, lay that down. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of that. Come forward and have someone pray for you and that holds you accountable. Or maybe you're here today and you don't have a church home and God led you here today by his providence. I'll say again, I'm not the pastor here, but I'll tell you this. This is a great church, great staff, full of people who love God, great congregation. So if you don't have a church home, I would encourage you to, to pray about it and say, God, is this where you would have me? It's a great place. Whatever God is doing in your heart, I would just ask you to, to obey him. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, let's stand and sing. And if you need to come forward, please do so. Father, right now, thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are patient, that you are kind, that you love us with a love that is incomprehensible to us, a love that is far greater than any earthly love. Though we don't deserve that, God, you in your grace and in your mercy sent your Son to die in our place so that we could have life and life abundant. God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, we pray for their salvation. God, I pray for brothers and sisters in this room right now who might be battling these fleshly passions. Maybe they've just given in to them. Lord, burden their heart, convict them of that, and help them to repent. Maybe we have brothers and sisters right now in this room who are battling, and they're engaged in a fierce battle. God, give them strength. Give them resolve to remain faithful. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And we commit this time to you.